Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. So I'd like to share with you tonight uh, three pieces. The first one is a classic, famous piece originally a lecture by Rabbi Yosef Soloveitchik, which is a classic and fundamental understanding of the conflict between Korach and Moshe that takes place in this week's parsha, And it's fundamental in the sense that it is uh, basic to our understanding and practice of Judaism, and also something that is tremendously relevant to us today on an ongoing basis and that's what I want to start with sharing with you this evening. If you turn please to page 820. (coughs) So, the beginning of the Parsha We have this rebellion that is started by Korach and joined by a couple of other people and a few other people and 250 people. Pasek Gimel number 3 by Yikalu al Moshe al Aaron and they gathered together against Moshe and Aaron by Yomru alehem and they said to them Moshe and Aaron Rav Lochem it should be enough for you the entire congregation is holy. And God is within every single Jewish person. Why should you raise yourself up? Raise yourselves up to be higher than everybody else. Everyone is holy. You're nothing special. Everyone is holy. So the Medrash gives us a background story of how they expressed their rebellion against Moshe. It's included in Rashi. And the Medrash says they came to Moshe and they asked the following question. Famous Medrash. They had these uh, followers, including 250 people that the Pasuk mentions. You know that there's a mitzvah to wear tzitzis, which is uh, strings in the corner of a four-corner garment. And originally the mitzvah was to have one of those strings dyed with techeles, which is like a blue-purple dye. That's the mitzvah. So they had these 250 people dress up in garments that were, the garment was completely dyed with this blue-purple color. And they came before Moshe and they said, Moshe, let me ask you a question. The garments which are completely treles, they're completely dyed in this color, do we have to put tzitzis in the corners of these garments? And they asked this question in order to 
disparage Moshe and the laws that he taught because it sounds ridiculous. If the mitzvah is to have one string, if you have the whole garment, it sounds like it's much better than one string. Why do you need one string if you have the whole garment? Then the Medrash tells us, another Medrash tells us, they came with another question. They said, Moshe, let me ask you a question. If you have a room in your house, you're supposed to put a mezuzah on the door. What if you have, what is a mezuzah? By the way, it's important to know this. A mezuzah is not the, the decorative cover that you see, right? The mezuzah is what's inside. It's a parchment, which is a passage from the Torah that is written on parchment, just like a, a, a Torah scroll, but one passage, two paragraphs, rolled up and put inside the cover. So, they came and they asked the following question. They said, Moshe, we know there's a mitzvah to put a mezuzah on the door. What happens if you have a room that is filled with Torah scrolls? Do you have to have a mezuzah? The point of the mezuzah is to have a, 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 a paragraph, two paragraphs of the Torah on the door. What if the whole room is filled with Torah scrolls? Why should you need a mezuzah? Rav Soloveitchik provides the following understanding, philosophical understanding of what's going on here. And it's something that's very, very profound and very, very relevant to us today. And it goes like this. We see this today when there is a trend within the Jewish world, which mirrors trends in other cultures as well, where everyone thinks they're an expert. And everyone thinks that they have the right to decide what is the right thing and what is the wrong thing. It never ceases to amaze me. I look at Facebook a little bit. It never ceases to amaze me when people will post a question on Facebook <coughs> which means you're asking the world, right? The world. <coughs> Is this product kosher? So some people say yes, some people say no, some people say no. But instead of just asking a group of random strangers, why don't you ask someone who actually knows the answer? Kosher is not just, I feel like it's kosher. I saw something recently, a story on Facebook, where a woman said, seal meat is kosher. Seal. Seal. No, seal, the animal seal. We're in Canada. Seals. It's kosher. Why? I think it's kosher. <laughs> I think so. But that's not the way the kosher works. It's not just, it's not just a subject of, of an opinion. I feel it should be kosher. What was Korach's slogan? Every revolution needs a slogan. Kol ha'edah kulam kadoshim. Everyone is holy. 
Everyone has the same level of authority. Everyone has the same connection to God. You say that you know what God wants us to do, Moshe, just because you happen to go to the top of Mount Sinai and speak to God for 40 days, you think that gives you any better insight? I'm just as holy as you. I say God wants us to do the other thing. Who's to say that your opinion is any better than my opinion? That is exactly what Korach was saying. Korach was saying there is no need that is so kind of you, thank you that is so kind, I appreciate it Ricky thank you <coughs> Korach was saying everyone's entitled to their own opinion everyone could do it however they want and therefore we don't need to listen to in quotation marks experts like Moshe Rabbeinu. You know the comedian uh, Stephen Colbert? It's really funny. So I read a line, he said, he said he dislikes reference books. They're so elitist. They think they know everything. But our fundamental belief as Jews is that it's not up to us to decide. It is up to Hashem to decide how He wants to be served. And Hashem does provide what we refer to as a misora, as a transmission of authoritative teaching. And Hashem did teach Moshe at the top of Mount Sinai, what he wanted us to do. And Moshe did teach the Jewish people. And there is an authority to that. And rabbis in each generation will continue to teach the Torah that they have received and transmit it to the next generation. Yes, it's true. An individual rabbi can be wrong. Yeah, that's true. And it's true that people can make mistakes. That's correct, yes. But as a general matter, it's not just up for popular opinion how Hashem wants to be served. And the best expression of it is through these two um, stories slash questions that Korach posed. So Rav Salvechik explains as follows. <laughs> he says, every mitzvah really has two parts. There is an action and there is a certain spiritual goal. We eat matzo on Pesach. There's an action of putting something in our mouth and chewing and swallowing. And there is a spiritual goal of remembering the exodus from Egypt, of understanding the nature of freedom, etc., Spiritual goal. Every mitzvah has those two aspects. And we can kind of contrast different mitzvahs and say in this mitzvah maybe the action is more important or less important, but every mitzvah has two aspects. Korach's theory was it's not the action that's important. It is the goal. And therefore, if I can get to the goal in a different route, 
I don't need the mitzvah. What's the goal of the blue-purple thread? So our rabbis teach us, the medrash teaches us, that the color is supposed to be evocative, remind us of the sea, and the sea reminds us of the sky, and the sky reminds us of God's glory and God's presence. So it is supposed to evoke in us a, a connection, a spiritual connection to God. But the physical act through which we do that is to put these colored, dyed strings on the corners of our garments. What Korach was saying was, listen, if my whole garment is purple, that leads me to the goal without the action. Why do I need the action? I'll take some other route to get to that goal. Well, we have a group of Jews <coughs> in modern times that have the same idea. And I'm not saying this, God forbid, in any way to, to criticize or to... I, I don't want to put them down. And God forbid, I don't want to uh, assert that they were like Korach in rebelling. But this idea is really the basis of what Reconstructionist Judaism is. Reconstructionist Judaism posits that we can reconstruct the goal of what a given mitzvah is and achieve it in some other way that is more in keeping with our values or, or beliefs or practices. We have that right. And Moshe insists, no, we do not. Yes, it's true that the goal is important. <coughs> it's true <coughs> that we need to get to, to take the mitzvah tzitzis, that point of connecting with God on a spiritual level, but it is imperative that it is done through the vehicle of the mitzvah that God has given us. And to try to figure out our own way to get there is to lose sight of one of the two critical components. The mitzvah itself must be our starting point. And if the mitzvah itself is not our starting point, then thinking that we're arriving at the same goal, how did the practice go? Okay, good, good. Welcome. Take some cholent and come join us. Thinking that we're going to get to the same goal is a mistake. And, and we see this today. We see this today in all sorts of ways, including within the Orthodox world, where people say, you know, I think this is how it should be done. I think this is the way to get to that goal. I don't need the vehicle of the mitzvah, but that's a mistake. And what God is demonstrating through this parsha is the lesson that Moshe is teaching. And that is, there is a Masorah. 
There is a transmission of how Hashem wants to be served. Actually, I shared this in a Dvar Torah, that, a short Dvar Torah that, that you'll see tomorrow in the email. <coughs> Why is it a mistake to say, everyone is holy? What's wrong with that? It's wrong because the correct formulation is what we read in the Torah a few weeks ago. Kedoshim tiyu. You should become holy. You're not already holy. You have to work on it. You have to take the steps to get there. We are not already automatically inherently holy. We have the potential to get there if we work on it. Korach is asserting you're good. You're perfect. You don't have to do anything more. You're good as you are. Moshe is asserting, no, you have to work to become holy through the mitzvahs. That's how you get there. And that is the approach that prevailed. Rabbi Salvechik was speaking in the 1970s. <coughs> it's even more true today but it is a, a fascinating and very, very relevant understanding to this showdown between Korach and Moshe. Okay. I want to share with you the second piece. Let's look back at the top of the page. Page 820. Let's try to understand the dynamics of this rebellion. And let's try to understand who was rebelling. Bayikach Korach, ben Yitzor ben Kos ben Levi. So you have Korach. We know that he is a Levi from the tribe of Levi. That means he's a cousin of Moshe. Now, some more people. Dasan and Aviron and On. Ben Peles, they're B'nai Ruvain. They are from the tribe of Ruvain, different tribe. Then, Pasik Bays, number two, Moshe Yisrael and there are another 250 people. <laughs> Who are the 250 people? Our sages explain they were Bechorim, firstborn. You remember we discussed this before. Originally, God's intention was that the firstborn of each family should serve as the spiritual leaders of the Jewish people. And then because the firstborn participated together with most of the other Jewish people in the sin of the golden calf, God took away the role of spiritual leadership from the firstborn and transferred it to the tribe of Levi who did not participate in the sin of the golden calf. Okay. So what's the rebellion about? Well, Korach is rebelling against the authority given to Moshe and Aaron. As he says a little bit later in the Pesukim. Moshe, you appointed your brother Aaron as the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, what about me? I'm your cousin. I'm also Levi. 
should be shared among the whole tribe of Levi, not just your family. It's like nepotism. It's not right. Of course, we understand Moshe did not appoint Aharon on his own. God told him to appoint Aharon, but Korach rebelled. What are the children, what are the people from the tribe of Reuven rebelling against? Well, we know they're rebelling because Reuven was the firstborn of all the tribes. Reuven was the first, firstborn to Yaakov, to, to our patriarch Jacob. So Reuven is rebelling because why did you take away the leadership from the, we're the firstborn. We should have been the leaders of the Jewish people. Of course, you remember the story in back in Bereshus in Genesis where Yaakov transferred that authority from Reuven to Yosef to the other tribes. But Reuven says, we should be the leaders. And then you have the 250 people, the firstborn. They say, we should be the leaders because God originally appointed us. The original plan is that we should. Why should Hashem have taken it away from us just because of the sin of the golden calf? Just think about this strategically for one moment. Anybody with half a brain has got to see that this rebellion is not going to succeed. Because everybody wants something different. If Korach wins, the tribe of Reuven is not going to win and the, and the firstborn are not going to win because Korach just wants it shared more widely among Levi. If Reuven wins, then Korach is going to lose and the firstborn are going to lose. If the firstborn win, then Korach is going to lose and the tribe of Reuven is going to lose. So they, they can't even provide a united front it's not possible for all of them to, to win. So the rebellion is illogical on its face. It can't possibly proceed. But what you see is, and Rabbi Jonathan Sachs points this out, when people are jealous and envious, All they see is their jealousy and their envy. And they don't think logically. If any one of those people would have thought logically, they would have thought to themselves, what am I doing together with these other people? It doesn't make any sense. But when a person is filled with hatred, and a person is filled with envy, and a person is filled with jealousy, they don't see clearly. Let me show you an even more dramatic example. Now, I want to read a Pasik together with you. Please turn to the next page, 822. Now, when you read this Pasik, you're going to say to yourself, there's got to be a, a, a typo. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. It can't be. It's, it's got to be a mistake in the text. But it's the text. So, Dasan and Aviram, 
these two men among the people who are rebelling against Moshe. Moshe went to try to make peace with him. Page 822, near the bottom of the page, Pasuk number 12. Moshe went to try to make peace, make shalom, with Dasan Aviram, and they said, no, we're not, uh, we don't agree. We're not, we're not willing to negotiate. And they said, as, far, as continued to say, Pasuk 13, Hamaaki helisanu me eretz zavas chalavad vash lahamisenu bamidbar. You took us out of a land flowing with milk and honey to bring us to this desert to die in the desert. Just one second. Hold on a minute. Eretz zavas chalavad vash, a land flowing with milk and honey. What, what land is that? It's Israel. Where did Moshe take them out of? Egypt. They're referring to Egypt as a land flowing with milk and honey? Hold on a second. We had Pesach a few months ago. I remember a story. They were beating us. They were persecuting us. They embittered our lives. What do you mean? Flowing with milk and honey? That doesn't sound so bad. Short memory. I would call it fake news. It's, it's crazy. You're referring to Egypt? The persecution, the slavery, and the, and the servitude in Egypt as Eretz Zavas, a land flowing with milk and honey, and now you're complaining, Moshe, how could you take it? How could you have taken us out of such a wonderful place? Our sages tell us it sounds crazy. But that is human nature. Our sages tell us when a person is angry, when a person is jealous, when a person is envious, mikalkeles es hashura, which literally means it makes the straight crooked. It makes a person not think straight. It makes a person say things that just don't make any sense. It's bring to hatred. Jealousy. Jealousy bring to hatred. And not only yes, yes, and not but not only hatred to illogic, to unreasonableness, to silliness. I want to share with you something that I saw from Rabbi Yehuda Amital, a blessed memory. And it's an amazing insight. Rabbi Amital says, if we could just stop and see ourselves when we become angry and jealous and envious, if we could just take one second and see what we look like, we would never do it. And we would avoid so much destruction 
and so much hurt, so much pain. But that's what happens. We become ridiculous. Have you ever noticed a person who loses their temper? Have you ever noticed how, forget about destructive and painful, and, but just how silly, how ridiculous such a person appears? You're really so angry about this? This is... But of course. And I don't, want to, I don't want to impute this to anybody else. I'll just say it about myself. There are times when I've lost my temper. And of course, when, when I am in that moment, I'm not seeing myself. I, I think that it really is the most important issue in the world. And I, and I think it's worth it to yell and scream like a crazy person. But if I could just take a second of how I appear to any objective, reasonable person, it's like a, a crazy person. Because someone sat in your seat, you're yelling and screaming. Because somebody took a piece of cholim before you and, and, and you're yelling and screaming. It's already different. But, but let's not laugh about it so much because anybody who's been to the Adapt Kiddush. <laughs> you know this great line, and it's not just the Adapt, this great line I heard many, many years ago. I, I know many of you knew Rabbi David Hartman, the great, amazing Rabbi David Hartman. I also knew Rabbi Hartman many, many years ago. And I heard him say once, many years ago, he said, if a person is considering conversion to Judaism, he said, the last test is to go to a synagogue kiddush. If you still want to be Jewish after seeing people at the end of davening running for the kugel, you must be serious. But when we see that, we see how, how ridiculous it is and how silly it is. Ravami Tal explained it in the following way. There's a famous story in the Talmud. I'm sure you've heard it before. And it goes like this. The, the Talmud is telling a story about what Jerusalem was like at the end of the Second Temple period. The deterioration of morals and leadership that the Talmud says led to the destruction of the Second Temple. Obviously, it's not just this one individual story, but it's emblematic of the deterioration. And the Talmud tells the following story. There was a man, and this man had a friend whose name was Kamsa. That was his name? Kamsa. 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 Kamsa was his friend. Now, it happened that in Yerushalayim, there was also another man whose name was Bar Kamsa. Bar Kamsa was his enemy. He didn't like Bar Kamsa, but he loved Kamsa. This man was having a party. And if you're going to have a nice party, he was a wealthy man, you send invitations. But you don't send it in the mail. It's not the nice way to do it. You send a messenger to hand deliver it. So he gave his servant the invitation 
take this to my friend Kamsa. The servant got a little bit mixed up. Kamsa, Bar Kamsa, he thought it was... A, and he delivered it by accident to Bar Kamsa. Bar Kamsa gets an invitation to a party. He sees it's from his worst enemy. He thinks to himself, why in the world is he inviting me to a party? We hate each other. Maybe he wants to make up. Maybe he wants to... Maybe. So Bar Kamsa goes to the, to the party. The host sees Bar Kamsa at the party. What are you doing here? I can't stand you. He says, you invited me. I didn't invite you. I invited my friend Kamsa. And he says, get out. And Bar Kamsa says, don't embarrass me. And he embarrasses him. And, and, and the sages who are there don't speak up. And it's this terrible moral vacuum. Vacuum of leadership that no one is willing to speak up at this host embarrassing this person in public who did nothing wrong. Okay, that's a famous story. Says Rav Amital. Everybody thinks when they get into an argument with someone else that they're kamsa. Everyone likes me. I'm the friend. And if I have an argument, someone's arguing with me, I'm arguing with somebody, everyone's going to take my side. Because they're my friends. Here's the truth. Everyone is Kamsa. Everyone is also Bar Kamsa. I got news for you. If you get into a Machlokas with somebody, half the people are going to take your side and half the people are not going to take your side. You think that everyone's going to stick up with, for you? It's not true. Because just like there's Kamsa, there's also Bar Kamsa. You think you're Kamsa? You're not Kamsa. You're also Bar Kamsa. And that means that you are never immune to becoming illogical and foolish and silly when you get angry. Because people are not going to say, oh yes, he's righteous, yes, he's on the right side. I'm going to support him. That's not what people are going to say. People are going to say, you lost your temper, you look foolish. And you see this so clearly in the illogic of what this band of eclectic rebels did and what they said. And what that means is, and what the Parsha is teaching us, is how far we have to go to avoid machlokas. Avoid conflict. Avoid controversy. The Chavetz Chaim, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Kagan of Radin, used to say that when a person arranges their finances, you have different funds. I have a fund for mortgages. I have a fund for food. I have a fund for dry cleaning. He said, a person should have a fund for machlokas, to avoid machlokas. Meaning, I should allocate a certain amount of money, just like I need food, and I need clothes, and I need all the other things. I need Netflix, for sure. I also need an amount of money set aside to avoid machlokas. So that when a certain situation comes up, 
and I would be upset about something because somebody ruined something of mine. I lent something and they returned it to me and it was ruined. I have two choices. I can either get upset and start an argument or I can dip into my machlokas fund and use the money and buy myself a new shovel. I don't have, I don't have to get upset about it. That is, is an important a financial necessity as food and clothing and shelter and Netflix. Listen to this story. I've told you many stories about an incredible man who lived a number of years ago, Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach, lived in Yerushalayim. It happens that he once made a wedding for his son, Rav Avram Dov Orbach. Okay? So he makes a wedding, they're at the wedding, and there was a problem with the fish. There's something off with the fish. <clears throat> so as soon as Rav Shlomo Zalman heard, understood that there was a problem with the fish, he ran into the kitchen and ran to find the caterer immediately. And he said, there's a problem with the fish. And I am worried that my mechutin, right, the other... His, his son's new father-in-law is going to be upset because he's paying half and I'm paying half and he's going to come in and he's going to be upset that he paid for half and, it's, it, and it's, it's rotten, it's ruined. So I am paying the full amount for the fish so there will be no machlokas. And the caterer said to him, he smiled and he said, your mechutin just came in and told me the same thing. That's a good shidduch. That's a good shidduch. I want to tell you one more story. <coughs> there was a great Hasidic Rebbe in Poland Rav Yisrael Danziger. He wrote a, an important sefer called Yismach Yisrael. And his father's name was Rav Yechiel Danziger. And um, they lived in a town and, and his father was a Hasidic Rebbe. And as you may know, the Hasidic Rebbe's were like a... a they, they, they were like a court like a, a, a king, a sovereign. And there was ritual, and there was etiquette, and there was honor. So, it once happened that the son was sent by his father together with several other emissaries for a certain purpose, a certain discussion to another great Hasidic rabbi. And when they got to this other Hasidic rebbe, 
that Hasidic Rebbe the, told his secretary, tell them to wait. I'll be there in a while. And obviously it was kind of a power play. And um, when the Rebbe did see them, treated them not befitting emissaries of this great Rebbe who they were, treated them in a somewhat disrespectful manner. Came home, told the story. Okay. Mistreated by somebody else. About a year later, this other Rebbe who had mistreated, this other Rebbe needed a great favor from Rav Danziger. And this other Rebbe sent a delegation led by this other Rebbe's son to Rav Danziger. And when they arrived, and everybody remembered the story from the year before, Rav Danziger greeted the emissaries with honor, ushered them in, spoke to them respectfully, treated them nicely as befitted emissaries of this other Rebbe, personally ushered them out when they finished, and they went home. After they left, the students of Rav Danziger said to him, Rebbe, how do you treat them with such honor and etiquette and respect when they treated you just the opposite a year ago? And he said to them, better that they should learn from me how to be a mensch than I should learn from them how to be a boor. Here's the thing. We all face situations of conflict. We all face situations where we feel we want to lash out in anger or envy or jealousy. But we need to stop. And learning this Parsha Korach has to remind us we got to stop for a second and see ourselves as others are looking at us and not become foolish. Yes, there are times when it is necessary to take a stand and there are times when it's necessary to stand firm. Yes, that's true. In 0.001% of life situations. But most of the time, take a step, take a second, make sure you're not being foolish, make sure you're not being silly. Use the anti-Machlokas fund and avoid conflict. Okay. I want to go to a third piece. So, this week's Parsha, at the end of the Parsha, introduces us to another subject. If you turn, please, to page 834. Page 834, Pasuk number 13. The Torah teaches us the mitzvah of redeeming the firstborn. Pasuk 13. 
Bikurei kol asher ba'artsam asher yavil Hashem l'cha yiyeh kol tar b'veischa yochlenu the first of everything in your land should be a gift to Hashem. Kol cheirem b'Yisrael l'cha yiyeh pasik 15 kol peter rechem l'cha basar asher yakrivu l'Hashem ba'adam ba'behema yiyelach the firstborn of every mother of every woman and the firstborn of certain animals must be redeemed. Ach, pado, sifta, es, bachar, ha'adam you should have a redemption of the firstborn. And this is a mitzvah called pidyon haben, redemption of the firstborn. And the way it works is like this. The way it works practically is the firstborn to a mother, peter rechem, the first to be born from the womb of a woman. So the firstborn of a mother, when the baby reaches 30 days old, there is a mitzvah called Pidyan Haben, a ceremony. Redemption of the firstborn. Perhaps some of you have attended such a ceremony. Perhaps some of you have not attended such a ceremony because it's not so common because there are several situations when it does not apply. But let's understand the reasoning because it's very simple. Why does the firstborn have to be redeemed? Because, just like we said a, a little while ago, originally Hashem intended that the firstborn of each family should be those to serve as spiritual leaders. Then there came a time when Hashem changed His mind and decided, no, the firstborn are not going to serve. But there is still a remnant of that original holiness designated to the firstborn of each family. So, in order for the firstborn not to be the spiritual leader, there has to be redemption. You redeem it. And the firstborn is now just a regular person. Of course, the leadership is in lieu of, towards whom? To the tribe of Levi. And therefore, any child that is born to the tribe of Levi, so that means if a baby is born and either the mother or the father is a Kohen or a Levi, because both groups are from the tribe of Levi, there's no mitzvah pinyin aben, because it doesn't apply, because they are the spiritual leaders. It's only the firstborn from other tribes. So if either the mother or the father is the son or the daughter of a Kohen or a Levi, there's no mitzvah pinyin aben. So there are lots of circumstances where there's no mitzvah pinyin aben. I'm a Levi. This gentleman right here is a lady because he's my brother. This is my brother Beryl, who's visiting from Israel, who is also a lady. Just want you to know. I am also the firstborn. He usually forgets that. So in our family, we never had a pee in a bed? Okay. I want to share with you a sheet. If you please take one and pass it down. <coughs> please take one and pass it down. So, I want to share with you the actual ceremony itself. Now, the custom is to hold this ceremony first of all, not on Shabbos and not on Yom Tov because it involves redemption, which means money. 
coins, and we don't use coins on Shabbos Yamtiv, so it's pushed off for Shabbos Yamtiv. It's not pushed off because of health reasons, like a bris. So you know if, God forbid, a baby is born, a baby boy is born, God forbid is sick, and you have to delay the bris, it could be the, it could happen that the pee and a ben happens before the bris. Because you, you had that, right. Twins, yeah. Right. The pee and a ben is the 30th day regardless of the health of the baby, but the bris, the baby has to be healthy. So it's not always in that order. Okay, but it ideally should happen late in the day before sunset, sunset on the 31st day. And the custom is to have a meal, a su'uda, a meal. And in the middle of the meal, you have this ceremony. And the ceremony has a script. And the script involves the father of the baby plus a kohen. Because the kohen, representing the tribe of Levi, so the pidyon, the redemption, is in lieu of Levi, so it goes to a kohen. And there's a script. Let's read the script. Starts, it's, uh, it's in the middle of the page where it says, P and Aben. Uh, it's the page that has um, on the top right-hand corner, page 218. So the father and the son, and the father and the Kohen stand facing each other, and the father says, "Zeh b'ni b'chori, this is my firstborn son, and God has commanded that I should redeem him." Turn to the next page. So on the top right-hand corner, it says page number 220. So you see where it says the Kohen asks? Told you this is a script. So the Kohen asks the following question. Listen to this question. My boy is Tvei. Which would you prefer? Would you rather give me your firstborn son and I will keep him? Or, O boy is Livtoso, Bad or would you rather give me five silver coins as the Torah commanded and I take the coins and you take your baby back? Let's just stop right there for one second. What do you think is going to happen? Come on. I can understand if the child is a teenager. <laughs> My bias, Tvei, what would you prefer, father of a newborn baby? And presumably the mother is right there watching. Would you rather just give me the baby and I'll take him home and raise him for the rest of his life? Or you give me five... What kind of a question is that? You look at the next line. You hope the next line comes. The father replies, and it, like we have to prompt him. No, I want to redeem my son. I want to take my son back and keep him. I'm going to give you the five coins. What in the world is going on? Why do we have this scripted conversation? I want to share something with you. Here's the truth. The truth is, every single one of us 
need to be asked this question because every single one of us needs to be reminded of what the right answer is. And if you think it's silly, just think with a little bit, I'm not asking anyone to share any stories now, but with a little bit of honesty, how many times we do not put our own children first? How many times we do not put our own children first? How many times we sacrifice our children to our job, to our culture, to all kinds of silly things, to our own leisure. If we're being honest with ourselves, we need this script. And we need to be reminded. We need to be given an opportunity to verbalize what sounds so obvious, but let's just be honest, it's not really quite so obvious. Rabbi Yisachofran tells a story that a boy and his father were walking home from Shul on Rosh Hashanah. A religious family. <coughs> and the father says to his boy, <coughs> what did you daven for in Shul? Rosh Hashanah? You daven for what you want in the coming year? What did you pray for? What did you daven for? The father was a lawyer. The son said, I daven for two things. I daven the Mashiach should come, the Messiah, Mashiach should come. That's a nice thing to daven for. And I daven to Hashem that your office building should burn down. Because <laughs> <laughs> he never sees him. And those people who think they have a good excuse, they're often the worst. I'll just, I'll just point the finger at myself and not point at anybody else. But how often do I sacrifice my own children for whatever it is, my job, my career, the needs of others, but your own children have to come first. If I'm really being honest, I probably could have used this ceremony about 35 years ago. But I didn't have one, because I'm a lady. That's true. I'm serious. It's true. But at least when we attend one, we should be paying attention. Because we all do it. And we all need to be reminded. It's not a joke. It's not silly. It's not, what in the world are we having this script for? It's really there. This is a ceremony to remind us of what our priorities should be. It allows us to verbalize and articulate and say in public what ought to be obvious, but all too often is not. That's the Mitzvah Pi Ben. And uh, I hope if you have not been to one, you have the opportunity to attend one. It is a beautiful ceremony and it gets to fulfill this mitzvah and it gets to express 
this tremendously important idea. Thank you very, very much.